Thank you for the invitation. In a considerable number of preserved fragments of Empedoclean poetry, the speaker presents himself as a human teacher who is orally expounding a natural philosophy in verse form to his chosen disciple Pausanias, for whom the exposition is exclusively intended. Unlike the divine narrator to be encountered in other pedagogic fragments, the physical teacher, as a human being, follows the time-honored convention of claiming to depend on the inspiration of his muse, whom he calls Calliope. The physical narrator posits six fundamental principles, the only entities to which he is willing to conceive the attribute of being. These are the four elements, fire, air, water and earth, whose total mass never increases or decreases, as well as the two forces, love and strife. The complex interaction of these six entities can be described in a preliminary way as a system of three functions. The function of love is to combine different elements or portions of different elements. The function of strife is to dissolve these combinations of different elements. And as soon as the elements are set free by strife, their own function becomes apparent. It consists in enacting the attraction of like to like, which is inherent in them. That is to say, the elements by themselves form homogeneous masses, unless prevented from doing so by love. This system of three functions has been distorted by Aristotle in a very influential way, which needs to be spelled out from the start, because otherwise Aristotle's misrepresentation will be a stumbling block on our way towards an examination of powers in Empedocles. Aristotle represents Empedocles as saying that love creates and strife destroys full stop. On that basis, it is an easy victory for Aristotle to point out that love, by producing mixtures of different elements, is by necessity destroying the homogeneous masses. As to strife, Aristotle even goes so far to claim that according to Empedocles, strife does not remain content to destroy heterogeneous combinations, but actually creates the homogeneous masses. On that basis, Aristotle in Metaphysics, Beta 4, for instance, charges Empedocles with a twofold self-contradiction. The charge is that Empedocles would have to admit that love does not only create, as he claims, but also destroys, and that strife does not only destroy, as he claims, but also creates. In fact, there is no such self-contradiction at all. For Empedocles has never claimed that all aggregations of elements, both the heterogeneous aggregations and the homogeneous ones, are brought about by love and undone by strife. What he claims is just this. Love produces mixtures of different elements, and these mixtures of different elements are then dissolved by strife. So it may well be that love once in a while destroys homogeneous masses in order to produce mixture. 
but that does not imply the slightest self-contradiction. Nor has Empedocles claimed that strife, apart from dissolving love's mixtures, undertakes the creative extra job of bringing together the homogeneous masses. Far from it. The homogeneous masses are assembled by the elements themselves, by the attraction of like to like inherent in them. So a preliminary result seems to be this. Not only love and strife, but also the four elements, are directed each to one and only one clearly find end. All six of them can therefore be described as powers, or at least as being empowered, Although we may have to allow for distinction between transitive and reflexive powers, love and strife would seem to be transitive powers and that their end is to change the state of certain external objects, the elements. Love brings about the change from non-mixture to mixture, strife from mixture to non-mixture. The elements are reflexive powers in that their end is to change the state of themselves towards homogeneous concentration. So far, so much for a preliminary account. We will now test it by applying it to the central doctrine of the human teacher, the theory of the cosmic cycle. And from now on it may be helpful to uh, look from time to time at the uh, picture distributed as handout. The theory of the cosmic cycle describes the world's course as an eternal recurrence of the same, a regular alternation between the total mixture of the four elements by love and their total separation by strife. There are several descriptions of the cosmic cycle of mixture and separation in the fragments, each of which adds new details to the account. One principal account of the cycle could be reconstructed uh, in more detail on the basis of an ancient papyrus uh, copy. It comes from the first book. Throughout the cycle, love is consistently depicted as inside, while strife is consistently depicted as outside. What changes in the relationship between love and strife is merely the way the cosmos, which is filled with the four elements and is more or less spherical in shape, is divided up between them. In the phase of increasing mixture, love starts out from the center and occupies a larger and larger portion of the cosmos in the process of centrifugal expansion, forcing strife to the periphery. Conversely, in the phase of increasing separation, Strife starts out from the periphery and in the process of centripetal invasion penetrates further and further into the cosmos from all sides, compressing love back into the center. Each process, that of increasing mixture and that of increasing separation, has a cosmic state of divine perfection as its goal. Sorry for that. The process, <laughs> the process of increasing mixture brought about by love's expansion leads to a state of rest in which the four elements are completely mixed and combined into a spherical god, the Sphiros. The latter is referred to as Apollo. The process of increasing separation brought about by strife's invasion leads back to a state of tremendous agitation. 
in which the four elements exist in a state of chemically pure separation. They have assembled themselves by the inherent attraction of life uh, of like to like in four concentric masses with an earthly sphere at the center, surrounded by the spherical shells of water, air, and fire. All four of them rotate around one another. Like the Spheros Apollo, the four perfect masses are described as long-lived gods, Hera, Nestis, Aidoneus, and Zeus. In the, traditional, uh, in the tra transitional phases between the extremes, by contrast, the element's divinity is compromised and diminished. This holds for the phase of increasing mixture presided over by love and for that of increasing separation presided over by strife. It's no accident that in these periods the elements are referred to merely as daimones rather than teoi. Strife and love seize power at regular intervals. A more detailed reconstruction of the timetable of the cosmic cycle of the Physica has been made possible by a set of Aristotle's Scoria from the early 12th century discovered and edited for the first time by Marwan Rache. Each of the two perfect states, the dominion of the four divine elemental masses and the dominion of the spheros, lasts for 4,000 years, while each of the two transitional phases, the dominion of love and that of strife, lasts 6,000 years. The Scolia make it very clear that we must not call the spheros the reign of love, and that we must not call the... Uh, uh, dominion of the four masses, uh, the reign of uh, strife, or something like that. The reign of the two forces is in the transitions. The timetable's fundamental logic consists in the simple assumption that both love in its process of expansion and strife in its process of invasion take, on average, 2,000 years per element to complete their conquest of all four elements. The entire timetable is then derived from this module of 2,000 years, in the same way that, for instance, the ground plan of the Temple of Zeus at Olympia, that was completed in 456 BC, was for the first time derived from a single basic unit, the interaxial distance of 16 Doric feet. According to Porphyry's commentary on categories, a considerable portion of which seems to have been rediscovered for the first time just now, Alexander of Aphrodisias reported that Empedocles began his depiction of the cycle with the phase of the perfect separation of the elements, that is, the dominion of the four concentric elemental masses in rotation around one another, a phase that, according to the new timetable, lasts for 4,000 years. It's interesting to look at this phase of complete separation in greater detail. It's divided into two halves by opposite movements of strife and love. First, strife closing in from all sides compresses love into a sing single point, the center of the world, <coughs> that is, the center of the earth. Then begins the contrary movement, the centrifugal expansion of love. It is easy to see that the turning point between these two movements is reached immediately following the first half of the state of total separation. 
for the phase of complete separation lasts only as long as love remains confined to the cent central earthly mass, since it's precisely this confinement that pre prevents it from creating combinations of different elements. Yet after this phase has begun, strife must still traverse the entire earthly mass, closing in from all sides, to compress love at the Earth's center. Conversely, love, in its expansion from the Earth's center outward, must drive strife back out of the early mass, of the earthly mass, before it can set about mixing different elements. During the 4,000 years of the state of separation, then, the central earthly mass is occupied first by strife, as it closes in from without, and then, after the turning point, by love, as it expands outward from the center. Since the same space is conquered in both cases, albeit in opposite directions, it seems reasonable to assume that the phase of separation is divided in half, so that each of the two movements takes 2,000 years. After strife has been driven out of the central earthly mass, love begins mixing the elements. It is only in this activity of mixing that its dominion over the elements actually consists. It spreads to the three elemental spherical shells that surround the earthly mass and creates countless combinations of elements, forcing strive further and further toward the periphery. At the point where strife is left surrounding the cosmos as an outermost covering, love's dominion has achieved its aim, the production of the spirals. According to the timetable, love's dominion, that is, the process of driving out of the spherical shells of the three outer elements, lasts 6,000 years. Thus, again, it takes an average of 2,000 years for love to conquer each of the three outer elements, just as it took it 2,000 years to fully occupy the central earthly mass. After the formation of the Spheros and for the duration of its, the Spheros reign, both love which fills the Spheros and strife which surrounds it as an external covering enjoy a period of lazy rest. And that's the greatest surprise of the new scholar, yeah? because in the tradition of those who believe in cycles and things, uh, the Spheros used to be called the reign of love. Strange God, which needs the reign of someone else. <clears throat> this rest period is granted to the two powers as a compensation, that is, in compensation for the fact that they are continuously in motion for four-fifths of the entire cycle. The rest period of love and strife, i.e. the dominion of the spirals, lasts for 4,000 years, precisely the same length of time as the four concentric masses on the other side of the cycle. This determination is based on the additional assumption that the two perfect phases of the cycle are equally long. It is thus the single determination, the only one, that only follows indirectly from the module of 2000 years mentioned earlier, because nothing is happening at all in terms of movement. It is thus the single, uh, yes, and it seems to be the reason, this seems to be the reason for which the duration of the rest period of love and strife, and hence the moment immediately afterward when strife seizes power, are guaranteed by a broad oath. 
There you need some extra account, as it were. The dominion of the Sphios comes to an end when strife, the strength of whose limbs has been restored by the period of rest, invades the Sphiros from without and destroys it. Then, during the 6,000 years of its dominion, strife, by increasingly separating the elements, drives love back inward, out of the three outer elements, until there is no more organic combination remaining. It too takes 2,000 years to conquer each of the three outer elements on average. After that, the great whirlwind begins anew, that is, the 4,000 years of the dominion of the pure masses. In the first 2,000 years of this period, however, strife continues its century petal invasion until it too has traversed the uh, entire earthly mass. It's interesting to note from the point of view of our problem here that the movement of strife, the uh, invasion of strife, is not coextensive with the formation of the four pure masses. We'll come back to that. Between love's assumption of power and that of strife, and conversely between strife's assumption of power and that of love, there is in both cases first a transitional period of 6,000 years, and then a perfect period of 4,000 years. Perfect in the sense that the powers of love and strife have reached the end. The two events thus alternate at regular intervals of 10,000 years. The cosmic cycle is characterized by a twofold arising and a twofold passing away of mortal beings. One arising and one passing away accompany the universal process of fusion, whereas the other arising and the other passing away accompany the universal process of separation. For the proper understanding of this doctrine, it's important to realize that by mortal beings, neta, Empedocles means only the short-lived heterogeneous combination of elements in explicit contrast to the four divine pure masses which are free of mixture and dissolution during the 4,000 years of their dominion and which during this period of time are described as immortal, atanata. An analogous contrast obtains between the mortal beings, neta, and the divine spheros, whose dominion also lasts for 4,000 years. Thus, Empedocles' allusion to the twofold arising and the twofold passing away of mortal beings cannot refer to the spheros or to the four masses, but only to the short-lived heterogeneous combinations. But if this is the case, then it can only mean that a production and a dissolution of short-lived combinations takes place in each of the 6,000 years transitional phases of the cosmic cycle, not only during the transition from the four masses to the spheros, the dominion of love, but also during the transition from the spheros to the four masses, the dominion of strife. In each case, however, the production of the combinations is the work of love, and the destruction the work of strife. In actual fact, however, this process cannot truly be said to involve a coming to be or a passing to way at all, even if everyday usage suggests that it does. The only thing about us mortals that truly is, is the four elements. While we represent an extremely short-lived aggregate of those elements, they themselves neither arise nor pass away. Thus, if we are, with a capital A, if we are anything at all, we are the divine elements. 
One of the more interesting features of the Strasbourg papyrus is that the, physica, the, the physical narrator expresses this point quite aptly by occasionally passing over the transitory individuality, the so-called individuality, of the isolated combinations altogether and speaks instead directly in the name of the four elements themselves. Quote, under love's dominion, we, the elements, come together into the spirals. Does so three times in the preserved papyrus fragment. What's happening here is more, uh, more precisely that he uses the first person plural indicative sum er commissar instead of the participle used in similar formula elsewhere, sum er commena. It is true that there have been attempts at getting rid of these readings, but <laughs> these attempts have failed to convince me for a very straightforward reason. One of the three passages in question has been known all the time from a quotation in Simplicius. He quotes it as a more usual participle, synacomena. Okay. But precisely in this simplicity passage, we desperately need an indicative for the syntax. And various conjectures meant to get an indicative into the quotation have been suggested long before the papyrus was discovered. So it does not seem plausible to reject the indicative now consistently offered by what is the first piece of direct transmission of poetry just because we happen not to like this particular <laughs> That's not fair play. <laughs> <laughs> the first person plural formulae are particularly revealing with regard to the precarious status of what we would call individual beings. Within Empedocles' cosmic cycle, they are entirely secondary entities. The rich variety of combinations is to be sure, a fascinating spectacle to observe or to imagine. But their ontological status is derivative. This holds not only for the composition of their bodies, but also about the mechanisms of their sense perception and the contents of their thoughts, as we will see. For not only Empedocles' cosmology, but also his biology are based on the power structure of the cosmic cycle, and are only comprehensible in relation to it. One example for cosmology. Its derivative nature, i.e. being derived from the basic structure, becomes especially clear when we consider Empedocles' theory of the sun. Within the cosmic cycle, fires ascend to the periphery of the cosmos, will culminate at the height of strife's dominion, which at this point still lies ahead of us, in the formation of a fiery spherical shell that surrounds the entire atmosphere. This is clearly the basis for Empedocles' hypothesis, otherwise very strange hypothesis, that what we know as the sun is in fact a mere reflection of the fire that already covers an entire half of the firmament, the half that faces away from us during the day. This fire first illuminates the half of the firmament that is covered with air and visible to us in the daytime, which then reflected, reflects it onto the earth, which in turn, like a lens, reflects it back on the visible heaven in form of a disk. The path of this disk in the heavens 
may then be explained by the rotation of the firmament, which naturally also involves the latter's fiery half. So that's Empedocles' theory of the sun. Just like his cosmology, Empedocles' biology is also informed by the structure of the cosmic cycle. This can be seen best in the theory of the four zoogonic stages, whose order is attested by Pseudo-Plutarch. This doctrine is based on the assumption that love forms particular combinations of the elements, both in the phase of increasing fusion, as it gradually gains strength, as well as in that of increasing separation, as it weakens. The first two zogonic stages clearly fall in the phase of fusion that leads from the four separate masses to the spheros. The first stage, isolated body parts arise and wander around, about unconnected, temples without a neck, and so forth. In the second, love's strength has increased to the point where the individual limbs come together to form more or less monstrous combinations, dictated entirely by chance. Love continues to mix the elements until it finally produces the spheros. Writing on Pedocles' chance combinations, Aristotle commented by way of a remarkable, purely hypothetical thought experiment that one could imagine the survival or failure of these combinations as governed by the principle of the survival of the fit, as it were. Darwin invoked this thought experiment from the fourth edition onward of his Origin of the Species, so that in the late 19th century, Empedocles came to be regarded for a short time as a kind of ancient Darwin. But, but this was unfounded, as Edward Seller pointed out, inasmuch as no continuous evolution leads from the chance combinations of the second stage to the species of the present fourth stage of the zoogony. On the contrary, the third zoogonic stage is a new beginning, which takes place only after the formation and destruction of the spheros that is, at the beginning of Strife's dominion, which leads back from the spiros to the four separate masses. As the elements separate, fire quickly rises up from the earth, depositing uniform, unarticulated, mute, ungendered living beings to the earth's surface. This is immediately followed by the fourth stage, which corresponds to our present and is distinguished by Strife's increasing power of separation, as well as by the fact that life now reproduces itself by passing through living beings of the same kind. Every living, living thing or, so, or its seed comes from another individual of the same species. But the most important ruse by which love is able to oppose strife's increasing division is the sexual reproduction of ephemeral combinations, that is, mortal beings, a process according to Empedocles in which the offspring's genetic inheritance comes in equal parts from the father and the mother. The first overview of the sequence of these two stages, stages of increasing separation in the original wording, was brought to light by the papyrus the Strasbourg papyrus, because there's yet another one in the meantime, the transition from the third to the fourth stage takes place at that point in the cosmic process of the separation of the elements when fire in its ascent has reached the periphery of the cosmos. The transition is triggered by strife, which demonstrates its increasing strength by violently splitting the uniform, unarticulated beings of the third stage into male and female. When the sun rises for the first time, 
the living beings which have been mute up to this point produce their first sound, the cry of pain with which they react to their division. From now on they carry with themselves within themselves the desire for sexual union or reunion. And that's what uh, Plato may jokes about in the symposium. Finally, Empedocles explains sense perception and cognition by the attraction of like to like and by positing that every potential object of perception or cognition gives off a kind of elemental discharge that gravitates towards a portion of the same element in us, which it reaches through pores specifically tailored to each particular element. Thus perception and cognition occur in keeping with the principle of like with like. A good example of this is Empedocles' explanation of the process of seeing, which is particularly well documented. The eye contains within itself both fire, which is light, and water, which is dark. It's also covered with membranes, that is the cornea, that are made up of air and earth, and equipped with pores that are permeable to fire, as well as others that are permeable to water. In keeping with the attraction of like to like, the fire and water secretions of the object of perception, which are responsible for the perception of like and light and dark, respectively, enter the eye through the corresponding pores and reach the fire of water present within it. This process only continues, however, until a balance has been established between the concentration of a given element inside the eye and its concentration outside. Thus, the process of seeing can be explained as one in which the eye takes in whichever, whichever element is underrepresented within it. Living beings whose eyes are naturally filled with a small amount of fire and a large amount of water are capable of taking in a large amount of outer fire and a small amount of outer water and can therefore see better in the light than in the dark. The opposite is true of living beings whose eyes contain a small amount of water and a large amount of fire. In both cases, however, in order to avoid being overfilled, the eye regularly discharges the excess fire or the excess water that has been accumulated in the process of seeing. For example, the fire that has entered in in the daylight, thanks to a given difference in concentration, is released again in the darkness of night because at that time the difference in concentration is reversed. It is this nocturnal discharge, rather than the process of vision itself, which seems to be illustrated by the famous lantern analogy. So much for the attraction of like to like, the feature I'm particularly fond of. It should be clear by now, and thanks to these examples, that to present the elements as inert matter, merely subject to the activity or to the empowerments of love and strife, would be quite misleading, given the central importance of the attraction of life to life for various aspects of the cycle. It is time to draw some more general conclusions. I will do so by pointing out the limitations, the shortcomings by which my initial account of the system of three functions seems to be marred from what one may call a power structuralist point of view, and which will have certainly come uh, obvious uh, during our guided tour through the cosmic cycle. 
It is true that our initial hypothesis has been confirmed inasmuch the cosmic cycle is indeed structured by and large by the interaction of the powers, not only of love and strife, but also of the elements. But our initial attempts to define the nature of each of these powers do not exactly capture what is going on in the cosmic cycle. It does not seem that we have already identified for each kind of power the end, in order to quote your paper, the end the reaching of which in the course of the cosmic cycle truly realizes the power in question. In the case of love, we have initially said that its function is to produce mixtures, mixtures of different elements. But with regard to the cosmic cycle, this view of putting it is now seen to be short-sighted, too sentimental as it were, in that it is too much focused on the wonderful production of entirely ephemeral living mixtures. For we have observed that love has to expand for 2,000 years in order to drive strife out of the central sphere of Earth before she can even start to produce such living mixtures. What she really aims at right from the start until she takes her well-deserved time of rest is rather to conquer the whole universe of elements by chasing strife towards the periphery. That's it. Reaching this aim is equivalent to the production of the one real mixture, i.e. of the divine spirals. In the case of strife, we initially claim that its function is to dissolve the mixtures of different elements produced by love. But with regard to the cosmic cycle, this way of putting it is again too sentimental, in that it is too much focused on the tragic dissolution of living mixtures. For we have observed that strife, when the very last living mixture has been dissolved, and when the elements have accomplished the four pure masses, just goes on with the centripetal invasion for another 2,000 years, in order to compress love in the center of the universe. So what strife really aims at from the end of its precarious time of rest at the periphery, until it reaches the fatal turning point, what it really aims at is to conquer the whole universe of elements by chasing love towards the center point. As I said before, it's particularly noteworthy that Strife's aim does not even temporarily coincide with, let alone amount to, the accomplishment of the four pure masses. This is not the fulfillment of Strife. It is the fulfillment of like to like. What remains to be done is to relate the antagonism of the two powers of love and strife, as just described, to the power of the four elements. Here we have observed that the gradual realization of the strives of strife's power, i.e. chasing love towards the center, gradually sets free the power of the elements to enact the interaction of like to like. So the side effect, as it were, of the first 6,000 uh, 6, years of Strife's invasion is making possible the coming, coming to be of the four pure roots. By contrast, the gradual realization of love's power, i.e. chasing Strife towards the periphery, gradually blocks the power of the elements to enact the attraction of like to like. So the final aim of love's expansion i.e. filling the universe with love by chasing strife to the periphery, is equivalent to the production of the Divine One, which is joyfully thinking itself. One final remark. 
Other extant fragments of Empedoclean poetry point towards a story, the narrator of which presents himself as an incarnate god, quite unlike the human teacher whom we were listening to so far. He reveals in writing, not in an oral exposition, in writing, first part of a farewell letter from a distant locale to his earthly friends in Aquagas, the law of divine guilt and atonement. This law draws on two traditional narratives of the earthly sojourn of the god Apollo, the legend in which Apollo is punished by being exiled to earth, and the esoteric Pythagorean doctrine according to which Pythagoras was the last in a series of human incarnations of Apollo. Now Empedocles' law states that a god whose hands have been stayed with the blood of a murder is automatically punished by being banished from the community of the blessed to the earth, where he must purify himself by participating for a certain period of time in the incarnation of the souls of mortal beings. Even more surprisingly, the narrator claims to derive his knowledge of this law from his own experience, revealing that he himself is a diamond of this kind. During his exile, the banished god not only takes on human form, but also the form of certain plants and animals. At the end of his purification, immediately before he returns to the blessed community of the gods, the purified daimon becomes incarnate as a seer, poet and healer. And this is the narrator's own situation. He is divine, but still incarnate and active as a healer. In the second section of his farewell letter, the divine narrator issues as his ethical legacy, an appeal to abolish bloody animal sacrifice. This is nothing less than a call to end the fundamental ritual practice of Greek state religion. The narrator justifies this prohibition by urgently pointing to the cycle of reincarnation, which he had experienced firsthand and which affect all mortal beings. There's ongoing debate on the status of this letter. Is it simply irreconcilable with the physical system as Russian scholars of the late 19th and early 20th century once decreed? Or are we, are we to regard it as part and parcel of the physical system as notable scholars read in the other place, like Francis MacDonald Cornford, Dennis O'Brien or Catherine Osborne? Have been suggesting? Or is the divine letter rather mirroring the physical system in very much the same way as Plato's eschatological myths reflect central aspects of the more argumentative parts of the greater dialogues, as Ettore Bignone has suggested in 1916? It would certainly be beyond the scope of the present paper of discuss again that well worn question. I would simply like to put on record one thing. To my mind, the identification of the physical equivalent of the wandering demon has been made possible by the Strasbourg Papyrus. Just as the divine author of the letter counts himself among the incarnate gods, the physical narrator identifies himself and every other living being simply with the four divine elements, as we have seen. 
So my impression is that the physical equivalent of the wandering diamonds are the four elements. Just as the gods mentioned in the divine letter experience in their guilt and fall, banishment that corresponds to Apollo's earthly sojourn and which is governed by broad oaths, so the elements in the cosmic cycle undergo a process that may be regarded as the exile of the Spheros called Apollo and which is governed by a broad oath. Just as the gods mentioned in the divine letter are referred to as diamonds for the duration of the exile, so the elements are referred to as diamonds in the transitional phases, but only in the transitional phases of the cosmic cycle. Just as the gods mentioned in the divine letter enter a series of mortal beings by temporarily participating in the universal transmigration of souls, so the elements in the cosmic cycle enter a series of mortal beings. So, I would think that Empedocles' two speakers represent two complementary perspectives on the world's cause, just as today we may accept or tend to accept the claims, the very bold claims of neuroscience, nevertheless go on in everyday life to conceive of ourselves as taking decisions and so forth. That's of course a matter of debate. If it's true, it seems to be good news for Anna's project. For any attempt at reading a powers-only ontology to the fragments of Empedocles would encounter considerable extra difficulties if we were to accommodate features like individual continuity maintained through a series of reincarnations, let alone a party of feasting divine beings, some members of which are once in a while prone to acts of violence and perjury. Thank you very much.